This time on Star Trek Gold Key Theater. Space. The final frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast Give Me That Star Trek. Its ongoing mission to explore all of Star Trek. To seek out new guests and new opinions. To boldly go where many have gone before. Welcome to episode 18 of Gimme That Star Trek, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Siskoid, and today I'm joined by Nicholas Prom of Comic Reflections to pay tribute to sometime Star Trek comics writer, uh, overall comic book legend, Ledween. How are you, Nicholas? I'm doing great this morning, Siskoid. Thanks for having me on the show. It's morning for you, but it's like evening for me. <laughs> well, technically it's afternoon here, but I'm a day sleeper, so. Yeah, we're doing a coast to coast recording. Yes. <laughs> So yeah, today we look at Len Wein's eight-issue run of Star Trek comics over at Gold Key, and through him, the Gold Key series itself, really. But before we get into that, Nicholas, the fans need you to prove your Trek credentials. Oh, here we go. With our usual quiz. So if you're ready, <laughs> the big question is, what does Trek mean to you? I think Star Trek means like a progressive and optimistic future, a... um socially and morally equitable society that we could strive for. That's impacted your life, has it? Yeah, um, particularly the original series, uh, although I you know, I did uh, watch all of Next Gen first run. Uh, uh, I think more than anything, Star Trek is the prime example of the tabula rasa that science fiction serves as to really uh, tackle social issues and uh, strive for the moral high ground. What is your favorite iteration of the show? Uh, it, it's got to be the original series. To be honest, I'm original crew all day, and like the, the rest of Star Trek, I can kind of take or leave. Okay. Do you have a favorite character from uh, either from that iteration or any iteration? You know, surprise. You love the TOS, but your favorite character is from Voyager. <laughs> no, uh, no, it's not not like that. I mean. There are there are strengths and weaknesses throughout uh, Star Trek, but I think uh, I gotta go with Jim Kirk. I love the uh, the the classic standby of like, what gives you the right to endanger the lives of my crew for some gain? You know, like you know, I love that. If I had to encapsulate the righteous indignation of Star Trek in in one phrase or or or, or a sentence, I think it's kind of right there. Uh, <laughs> And that's a pretty good impression, I must say. And and believe me, I haven't even warmed up yet. I'm just kind of like, <laughs> and it's it's morning. I'm waking up now. So it's going, but uh, but thank you. <laughs> and uh, do you have a favorite alien species? Gosh, I'm gonna be boring and say probably uh, Vulcans. But I always uh, had a fondness for the Andorians and the little blue antenna. Mm. 
I just love that look so much. Like, oh, they're great. <laughs> and so underutilized in the, the larger canon of Star Trek. Yeah. They mostly started doing something with them with Enterprise. Right. You know, they had better antenna by then. Too little too late, though, I'm afraid. Uh, <laughs> but by the time Voyager and Enterprise came along, I was like, okay, I'll give this a few episodes. And if I'm not into it, I'm just scrapping the whole thing, kind of, kind of forgetting it as far as new iterations of Star Trek. We just got a token Andorian in uh, Discovery, so... I've been curious about Discovery, but uh, I don't want to pay for it, so... Yeah, I uh... get it, I get it. <laughs> yeah. uh, we, we don't get it on uh, the CBS thing. We uh, Actually, it does air on one of our channels here. And, oh, nice. Uh, yeah, and Europe has it on Netflix. So let's get into the topic of the day, and that's uh, Len Wein's Gold Key issues of the Star Trek comic. Just to give people a little bit of background here, Gold Key's Star Trek series lasted uh, for 61 issues, only one of which is a reprint, between 1967 and 1979, at least as far as cover dates go. Most of the first 40 issues are drawn by uh, an Italian artist called Alberto Giolitti. Correct. Yep, and it's interesting, you know, just as far as the art goes, because... These Italian artists, the, the first two issues were by Nevio Zaccara, same thing. They were working from photo reference and had never seen the show, and that's very obvious. Yes. Alberto Giolitti, who I believe drew the bulk of the series, he drew all the issues we'll talk about today, mm-hmm. he was best known for his work on Turok, Son of Stone. Oh, interesting. He, he did the bulk of that series as well, which ran for decades. <laughs> but yeah, uh, Giolitti never saw Star Trek, and it's painfully obvious as we go through a lot of these issues like when he had very little photo reference to work from and as he's getting more throughout the series because scotty for instance there's there's no photo reference and it's he's blonde in most of these way off model way off and you've got that interesting i think like the first issue of all which isn't gliti but you know same problem the very first issue shows they were thinking that the entire saucer section was the bridge (laughs) <laughs> right. Yeah, so the ship is also off-model, and Agility never really stops doing the warp nacelles as if they were retro thrusters. There's no energy shooting out of the back of uh, of the nacelles. So there's a lot of that, and the colorist, I don't think, ever got any photo reference, because everybody's uniforms are in green, and yeah, except Spock. Right. So there's a lot of that going on as far as the art goes. Yeah, and, you know, the shortcomings, uh, I mean, and then the art is nice. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I like Giolitti's stuff, but there's lots of panels where he forgets to, to draw Spock with pointed ears and other little inconsistencies like that. And there are other technical aspects from the show that don't seem to carry over to the comics, which, again, I think it's more because the artist didn't ever see the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it is a nice illustrative style, common to, to many Euro comics, really. And uh, I, I like the fact that he doesn't put any panel borders on anything. It gives it a, like a slick and unique look. That's really the look of Gold Key Comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I appreciate, I, I have kind of a fondness for, for Gold Key. Uh, they had, did have a lot of really uh, cool adventure series, particularly in, in the area of science fiction. It, it's a nice contrast uh, with the big two. It's It would have been great in, like, the Silver and Bronze Age to be reading comics and just, like, you know, picking up gold keys and Charlton's, which, like, look so different from uh, Marvel and DC comics. I think variety is nice. 
Yeah, a lot, Golki had all the you know all those licenses, and so if you were interested in some TV show or movie, there was a, a pretty good chance Golki had a comic for it. Oh yeah, and you know their original properties like uh, Doctor Solar and Magnus Robot Fighter and Turok and Space Family Robinson and and several other things. These are really great comics. <laughs> yeah, and some I mean Magnus was reprinted when Vintage started doing a Magnus series. Uh, they had a vintage Magnus series, which is just reprints of uh, of those old comics, or like recolored maybe, and they look great. I mean, that's very very slick for its day. Yeah, Russ Manning, the artist uh, for Magnus, was terrific, and he had done uh, the Tarzan newspaper strip as well. That's true. Okay, that's the art, but the writing of this Star Trek series, Len Wein, which we'll talk about, was very very much the the first artist to to dare to. Uh, how can I say this? Claim credit for Star Trek comics. Uh, you know, for the longest time, the comics were unsigned. We didn't know who did the writing on many of these. I think now right. it's it's considered like the first eight issues were done by were written by Dick Wood, perhaps, and then Arnold Drake took over after Len. But um, they really don't have the quality that Len Wein brought to the series. I think Len Wein is perhaps the first writer on this series that actually watch Star Trek. It's pretty clear. I mean, he, by and large, captures the right feel. Some of the dialogue doesn't quite come across right, but mostly it really reads like the characters uh, from the show. And um, I think that's a strength. It, it's it definitely, I mean, isn't it great to read a comic, at least in this period, written by a science fiction and comic book nerd who went pro? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he would have watched it. I mean, it's not like th these aren't the days where you might have had you might have them on videotape cassette or anything. So you're working from memory. You're working from books, maybe what you've seen of the show. And it, was it already in syndication in '71? Oh, probably. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm sure of it. So I mean, it was probably on, on reruns. But again, it, no video, not on demand. And I think with all of that in consideration, Ween is brilliantly captures the, the the true voices of these characters. The reason we are uh, touching on, on Len Wein's uh, work here, uh, he's a comic book legend, you know, created Swamp Thing, created Wolverine, created, uh, you know, have the, the new X-Men. And he passed away, sadly, in September of last year. And so we've wanted to do this show for a bit. Uh, we're only now getting to it. But not uh, too late, I think. He was, uh, at the time, a very prolific writer already, uh, doing stories for, at this very time, he was doing stories for House of Mystery and Secret Hearts at DC, for Tower of Shadows and Chamber of Darkness at Marvel, uh, for Nightmare, Psycho, The Bravados, Sundance Kid at Skywald, and for Gold Key, he was writing stories for Mod Wheels, Boris Karloff, Tales of Mystery, Microbots, and the Twilight Zone comic. And so, these eight stories to which he brought you know a certain continuity that wasn't necessarily there already and you're right a science fiction nerd this reads like science fiction or at least reads like scripts the show would have used or at least the cartoon series would have used so so people can find them anyways it's uh, issue 9 through 16 cover dated february 1971 to november 1972 they really do feel like story wise They could fit into Star Trek, either one one of those first two series. You're, you're absolutely right. Either either the, the live action or the animated show, which I love the animated series as well. It's it's fun. But yeah, we, we want to talk a little bit about uh, the legacy of Lazarus from uh, number nine. Sure, let's go. That's the first one he did. 
And uh, before we even go into that, I went back and looked at the previous issues to see if they were, you know, just to note the, the stylistic change. And yeah. the, like the two comics before Lenween's books, there's one about a, a villain using voodoo techniques to destroy Earth's landmarks. And there's one where the Enterprise crew is turned into kids. Uh, I realize TNG did this, but uh, they're, they're turned to kids by television. So oh. it's a lot more Silver Agey. And once Lenween leaves, same thing, it gets back to Silver Age tropes. And we're in the beginning of the 70s here. We're, we're maybe looking for something else as readers. Before and after Lenween, we really get that silly, almost magical plot. You know, the big twist at the end and somebody who over-explains just what we saw. You know, that's like a, like old Superman comics from the 60s. Oh, sure. And yeah, the, there there is a level of sophistication to this that, that I think um, is worthy of Star Trek, at least to these, these ween issues. Yeah, and that first one is one of my, if, if I were to pick like three favorites from this run, is one of my favorites. I think it's already, it's a, it's a story that could have been done on the show uh, in which uh, the people, they find a planet where it's populated by the great figures of uh, Earth history. Yeah. And it turns out that they're really androids that have been, somebody's found a way to, you know, pick up the brainwaves sent out from Earth and uh, just like uh, capture those personalities. And so a historian can, can study great figures from history. And then of course, uh, he's gotten bored with them and he's trying to get now Spock's brain. Everybody wants Spock's brain. That's, it's <laughs> a classic trope. So he wants Spock's brain so that he can then study the brainwaves for Vulcans and get some Vulcan historical figures on there so he can presumably study Surak and all that. Right. That's the story. Gosh, even as a historian, I would think like studying a bunch of Vulcan, famous Vulcans would be just dull as dishwater. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and I love them, but I mean, like, think about it. Their whole bag is being square. <laughs> so I mean, like, you know, like I think of, of the history of Earth. These famous figures are really colorful individuals, and that's why their history remembers them. Yeah, and really, if this guy was a real historian from the future, uh, he would know about you know historian trends. And in history today, it's mostly about studying the common man. Like, he should be capturing our brainwaves <laughs> to find out what you know 21st century nerds were interested in that was one of the things i loved uh, studying history in college was not just the, the the major figures but the minor ones not so much the things they did but the reasoning behind it the whys add another layer another dimension and make creates a, a fuller picture does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, that's exactly what it is. And it's, you know, and even if you only had a population full of Benjamin Franklin's and I guess they've got Hitler in there and uh, Nero. Don't forget Anton York, 45th president of the United States. Right. A uh, clever pseudonym. <laughs> for yeah. It's really too bad the Kelvin timeline wiped, uh, you know, rewrote uh, his his uh, administration. It's uh, those of us who remember. Uh, <laughs> well, Nicholas, I, I think we may be living in the mirror universe. So maybe, and of course, I know the Kelvin timeline is a divergent timeline, not a altering one. But I, for the sake of joking, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Any other thoughts on uh, Legacy of Lazarus? It's pretty good. Of these eight, I think it's one of the strongest. It, it's the one that's like, is this 
at adapting an actual episode, like it's that close. It's the first time that uh, I guess I sort of worked out the timeline on these things, and it seems to take place before Kirk actually meets Lincoln for the first time. Right. So this is the first time he meets Lincoln for real. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This one really reminded me of a couple of classic Trek episodes, that one included, and and I think that's a strength. If it makes you think of, oh, yeah, 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 this is like that one and so-and-so and that one, that's very good, especially when we're talking about licensed books, which are usually some of the worst comics ever, you know? <laughs> no, yeah, it's it's quite, I mean, it's th these are fairly simple stories, and they don't, obviously, the characters don't have a lot of character development and uh it's rare that licensed books would do that anyway because you know the, the properties have kind of a monopoly on actually doing it on their own not that there was a show at this time but you know so there's no room for character development gold key comics tend to like establish a premise and keep a status quo anyway but most licensed properties like when they license to a publisher comics or otherwise there are rules like you cannot allow them to marry You cannot kill off these characters, anything like that. And so stories are very limited in that capacity. The second story is called uh, Spec uh, no, Scepter of the Sun. I was going to say Spectre of the Gun. Uh, Scepter, right. Scepter of the Sun. And this one is, again, one of those stories that you that have that feel of, uh, of the show in that the premise is sort of a Lincoln in space or Greek gods in space. It's got a, a genie in space. You know, yeah, me. and the villain of this piece and and the basic plot, it's it feels like such a Flash Gordon type of story, and uh, I like that <laughs> quite a bit. That's one of the things that the comics can do, just like the cartoon series kind of did, is do more aliens and robots and uh, the sort of action that comic books are good at and that television is not so good at. Right. I mean, there's a scene in here where the crew have to face off against these animated uh, stone statues, and that's something that could never be done on television. Right. Well, they sort of tried to do it on uh, Star Trek V and didn't manage it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, the less said about Star Trek V, the better. Well, we've got, uh, a, we got a whole episode on it, so, I mean, it's covered. Well, yeah, listen to it. <laughs> uh, but this one is special because it has the first painted cover of the series. Oh, yeah, like George Wilson. Yeah, the George Wilson covers are really beautiful and a staple of gold key even the before you know those nine first issues had that sort of mod photo montage yeah that's cool and that you often found on those licensed books just using the pictures from the, the actual series but I, i i'd much rather have these painted covers oh yeah and i think that was that was one of the things that made gold key stand out from the rest of comics in the field or in the output at the time everybody was doing your standard-looking comic book covers, and these look like pulp novel covers, uh, which I think may attract uh, maybe a different uh, set of readers than your average comic book. I should think that parents would be quicker to, to get something like this because it looks like a picture book. It looks like, you know... Uh, some of the books you might have in hardcover for your kids at home would, that had that those those kinds of that art. Yeah. And uh, of course, you'd, you'd say, "Oh well, my kid watches Star Trek at home, so easier to pick up than than perhaps a you know a superhero comic from the time." Yeah, but uh, I mean, like George Wilson's covers share kind of like a similar vibe to a lot of James Bama's uh, Doc Savage novel covers, mm. which is awesome. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, Scepter of the Sun, I. I The genie in space thing was kind of weird, 
And of course, we get a very uh, Fu Manchu, uh, Ming the Merciless type of villain. But um, I dug it. I, I thought it was a cool story. And uh, Len Wein makes sure to explain it through science. It's all illusions and whatnot. So it's not like there's not an actual genie. It's just as reasonable as when the show did witches or, uh, you know, Apollo or whatever. Uh, it's as reasonable as that. So if you thought that was reasonable, this is too. And And I appreciate that because I think science fiction falls apart if you allow for magic to be real magic quote unquote to to be uh the cause or reason for anything so yay um <laughs> the next issue the brain shockers i actually covered this one on my show uh several years ago and it's a good issue but i have to confess i didn't remember it at all other than oh i'd read it before but uh, i had forgotten like everything about the story It's the one where uh, Vulcan emotions uh, are collectible, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, there's there's some weird stuff uh, with that. But yeah, they, uh, they're housed in bottles and, and the Enterprise are going to be taking them to a planet where they, these emotions will be enshrined, which is weird because if Vulcans want to suppress all emotion, why would they celebrate it in that way? But um, the bottles containing emotions break... <laughs> and on an away mission the away team kind of uh go wild kind of like in um the naked time yeah i, I mean it, it's got a callback to that and I, again len Wein is just working from the sorts of stories that star trek tells and the emotional spock story is one of the tropes uh, that came up fairly regularly in in the series uh, so it makes sense also uh, like you, you said you didn't watch enterprise but in enterprise there is a plot line where surax katra is in some sort of stone idol or tablet there was eventually a link to say that the katra or the or in this case emotions or whatever psychic material could be housed in objects so yeah and and I wonder if any of this was delved into in any of those early uh, Star Trek novels. Yeah, I don't um, I don't remember. I read, say, the first dozen at least of those early, early ones. I don't remember anything like this, but my memory is not what it used to be. And I haven't read those books, I, I must confess. So on the planet, on the away mission, there's kind of there the sort of uh, villain of the piece reminds me of the episode with uh, Clint Howard. As the the enemy revealed, do you remember what that one was called? The Corbomite Maneuver. Ah, yeah, that's the one. Where he plays Balok, or the the other face of yeah. Balok, yeah. Yeah, he's Balok mixed with uh, Kanjar Ro from the Justice League comics. Oh, he definitely looks like Kanjar Ro. But yeah, Balok, even the villain is called Malok. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, he, he is, he had laid in wait on this planet so that he could absorb and manipulate those Vulcan emotions for his own, uh, amusement or whatever, uh, or enrichment. And it, uh, is his own undoing, <laughs> as is the way in these kinds of stories. For me, the highlight of the book was, uh, oh, I don't know what page it is. There's no page numbers. Oh, on. page you're talking about. There's that montage page where Spock is battling with his emotions. And there's all that energy flying around, right? Right. It's got that look of many of uh, DC's mid-70s artists from the Philippines. You know, that those kinds of... I mean, like Alex Nino. Yeah, exactly. Esteban Moroto, uh, Tony DiZaniga. And on and on and on. The Filipino invasion, what a fascinating chapter in comics history. Uh, but I digress. Yeah, but it's got that, that look and that feel of just like curly cues going around. I don't know, there, there's something to it. Yeah, the, the next issue we've got, uh, what is it, from uh, number 12, The Flight of the Buccaneer. It might be 
My least favorite of these, just because I hate pirates so much. Oh, you oh, you, you hate pirates? Uh, oh my gosh, Portland is crawling with them. Uh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yes, really. I mean, like, cosplayers, but it's like, it's a whole thing. It's different here. <laughs> it is about space pirates. There's a planet called Tortuga 6. You know, it's very, um, I'll, I'll say it's silly. It's a silly premise. And in the 23rd century that quote-unquote pirates would dress like 15th century buccaneers is ridiculous. I mean, pirates of today don't do that. I mean, the real ones, like the like the ones from that Tom Hanks movie. Right. And and in this case, Kirk, etc., have to also dress up, like to infiltrate or whatever. And I yeah. guess they all get their ears pierced <laughs> because they've all got those big loop earrings. They're probably clip-ons. But uh, one thing that's notable about this issue is I think it's the first one where um, Gioliti has a photo reference for James Doohan. Ah, yes. That's starting to come together. I, I, You know, I almost have to wonder if Len Wein, obvious Trekkie, Star Trek fan writing Star Trek comics, didn't, like, push for... You know, if this was my artist and after a few issues of his kind of mangling the look of the characters, I might have sent a care package... <laughs> to Italy. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, and the thing is, how much clout does a freelancer really have, especially at this time, especially how early in his career it is, and especially with Western publishing, which is cool, but a little stiff. I mean, making DC look hip by comparison. So, I mean, I don't know. I mean, there are so many unanswered questions about this stuff, and I would love to know, but... But, but that's a very interesting point you raised, Cisco. I, you know, I have to wonder. Maybe it's just you know, he's just getting more and more reference as the months go by. But uh, at the same time, I mean, why all of a sudden, you know, during this era? This is a few years in. The, you know, the comic started uh, in 67. For the first two years of the series, the sh like the first four issues are across a two-year span. And then at this point, it's a quarterly, which is kind of gold key's standard there. And even then, it's kind of rough quarterly. Like, it's not quite every three months. But it's it's really cool to see over time, like, oh, on this issue, they're finally getting the shuttlecraft uh, right. They don't ever seem to get the Klingons down. I don't think they ever, <laughs> the Gioliti ever got reference for them, but what can you do? And as far as continuity goes, uh, this is said to be right after the Enterprise incident, because the Enterprise is still carrying the cloaking device. Yeah, I I, I, I was going to bring that up, like, oh, they, they make use of a cloaking device in this one. Yeah. So, I mean, like... So it's got to be right after. <laughs> well, or Len had probably had just watched that episode or remembered it and then wrote this story, because none of the other ones in this issue use that as a plot device or, or whatever. Yeah, he'll do a little things like that, like uh, Scepter of the Sun also had a mention of the eugenics wars. So Yeah. <laughs> so there's a, a lot more continuity. It's not just generic people in space adventure stories. You know, he's pulling from little threads in the TV series. You know, it's more of a piece. And if you're looking forward, this issue may be silly, and the whole pirate thing kind of is. It's also, uh, if you find the uh, the Marvel Comics series that has the movie era, the TMP era. Oh, sure. The last issue, 18, swipes pictures from this issue. Really? There's the pirate stuff, and there, 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 there are swipes in that issue that are directly from this. Even Spock looks like Giolitti's Spock. You know, I, I have only read a little bit of that Star Trek series, but I mean, like, why would you reference this unless you had some fondness for it? Yeah. And that's cool. 
That's cool. I'm, I've been meaning to track down those, those Marvel Star Trek issues. I'm, I'm sure they're pretty cool. All right, let's move along to issue 13, Dark Traveler. Matt, this one I think is the jewel of these issues. Really? I loved this one a lot. I think it felt the most like a real episode of Star Trek. It gets, maybe, it kind of gets a little wonky maybe in the last act, but I enjoyed this one tremendously. Uh, you know, a mysterious being appears on the Enterprise and, uh, takes control of the ship. Uh, we think he's malevolent, but turns out he's the good guy. I thought there were, there was a lot of depth to the idea of this story. Here is this guy who was from a, a planet who was a paradise, and he was bored with all of that. He thought his people had stagnated, and so he traveled the, the galaxy and hitched a ride on the Enterprise to return, and he returns to his world laid waste. Uh, he has to rebuild that society. I thought it was terrific. And it starts with a, uh, an Enterprise hijack, which is another trope from the series, uh, but doesn't dwell on that. It really moves along to, you know, this is perhaps one of the stories that feels longer, that feels more like a full-length episode rather than a uh, cartoon show episode, because there's so much there's so much stuff happening. Yeah, and clearly Ween is drawing from his love of a lot of other science fiction, because this feels very much like a lot of uh, 20th century science fiction, like a Robert Heinlein or uh, A.E. Van Vogt or something like that. It's really good. <laughs> And, and I, I like a lot of the concepts at, at play here. The uh, the traveler, the nomad, um, you know, he finds that his his dwarf brother has taken control of the robot slaves that kind of uh, served uh, all of his people in a very. Um, it felt like Davros from uh, Doctor Who. Oh yeah, sure. But of course, this predates that character and concept by a few years, proving that there's nothing new under the sun. But is so Star Trek. <laughs> If I could use that as, as an adjective, I just loved it. And of course, it does things that the Star Trek show couldn't have done, like that big. It's either clunky or funky, whether you depending on your uh, position on it. But the that uh, robot battle suit. Oh yeah, it's. I it's love that design. He has a DC Comics robot, but it is cool. And look at that body; it's very R two D two as far as the designs on the torso go. I was like, mm. yeah. Well, look at the feet; it looks like a toy robot. And you know what? The artist may have. Been very well seen a toy robot that looked just like this and just drew that. <laughs> what about the Enterprise Mutiny, uh, which is the, the next one over? You know, it's pretty cool. I think uh, Ween is really, he's only done, do, does eight issues, but he's like, now he's really kind of, he's really cooking. And uh, this was good. The concept seemed kind of familiar foppish or irritating uh, ambassador or or administrator that Kirk has to play off of or have to play up to because of their importance to some greater uh, mission of Starfleet. I mean, how many times did we see that in the original series? It kept coming back. But you've also got the Klingons in this. Sort yeah, of. Yeah, sort of. quote Klingons. Yeah. <laughs> so again, they're Klingons, but Giolitti had no references for this. So they just look like these bald aliens, these hairless aliens, uh, which isn't the Klingons that we know. There have been so many. I think the, I, I think the Klingons had, you know, a mess of genetic problems throughout right. the, the, the years. Uh, they've looked at many different uh, styles. But yeah, so Klingons make their first appearance in the Star Trek comics. And I think to Giolitti's, I'm not sure about credit, but maybe from his perspective, you know, getting this script and not being someone who watched Star Trek, the Klingon Empire, just that phrase, doesn't necessarily indicate that they are non-human, and it doesn't indicate that 
the Empire includes anything that is limited to a Klingon species. You know, uh, the Roman Empire uh, was made up of the broad and diverse nations of many peoples. And so perhaps coming from that perspective, he just kind of created these generic baldies that could have been the conscripted soldiers of uh, this vague Klingon Empire. Does that make sense? Well, sure. I mean, there's there are ways to uh, no-prize it. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of the no-prize. Just like, make it fit, make it fit. Everything happened, you know. <laughs> yeah. including this uh and uh yeah and it's got i think i think it's um poetic license personally but uh, the way the when the enterprise is circling that whirlpool in space that sort of black hole or temp- anomaly or yeah yeah it's got all these creatures and you know goblins and alien things sort of grabbing at the ship and yeah. they're sort of ghostly and i'm i'm not too sure that this is like really happening or if it's just a way to show it, you know, it feels poetic. Right. And I, I don't know too much about Alberto Gialitti as a person, but I mean, coming from Europe, you're coming with this classical education and even here, who doesn't remember those here be monsters types of maps where you fall off the face of the earth or, and there's weird things like just floating out in the unknown like that. Yeah, this is sort of a uh, from the Odyssey or something. Yeah, totally, totally. Charybdis and yeah. So there, there's that because nobody says you know hands are grabbing the ship or it's really it's just like a way to, to picture it. So as you know, the the art really does bring something to it here. Although it was perhaps a note from Lenwin, it's possible. Sure. Again, we we there's so much we don't know about uh, Gold Key and, and comics in this era of, like, how much interaction did the artist and writer really have? Did Ween just turn in these scripts and have no communication with Gialiti, or what? Yeah, or how easy was... I mean, did Gialiti have to have these things translated? Yeah, there's that, too. Yeah, he may not have, have been an English speaker, although that's a little odd for a fellow to be working for an American comics company and, and, and doing quite a bit of work for them and not. Yeah, one would hope. But who knows? So really, we all, all we can do is speculate. And if the scripts have to be translated for him, that leaves a lot of room for things to be lost in translation. Even if he's an English reader, maybe you know some terms might be more arcane or open to interpretation or open to misunderstanding. Uh, there are all those questions that are part and parcel of this that we'll never find the answers to at this point, yeah. unless someone knows of an interview somewhere, if, if there's some material somewhere in some fanzine that we're not aware of. Kurt Busick told an anecdote on a panel I saw last year, and he was saying, you know, uh, talking about the writing process is like, don't speak in metaphors, because things can be lost in translation. He gave an example of somebody says, well, they beat up the guy and then they hauled ass out of there. And the artist, who was a foreigner, draws somebody like riding a donkey away, like they interpreted that literally. <laughs> and so you have to be very careful how you communicate these kinds of stories or, or these plot points or whatever. Uh, speak plainly, <laughs> especially if you're just sending off a script to somebody, um, because at least it, it, referring to notes to the artist, if there are any, because things like that can happen. <laughs> Especially, uh, yeah, the American idiom, you know, is, is quickly lost because even from region to region, you can you can sort of mystify the the artist, and you know, I'm sure the the UK invasion caused some some weird problems sometimes if uh, you know if they matched a Grant, oh, a Grant sure. Morrison with an American you know artist or whatever. Uh, <laughs> 
certainly. Issue 15, A Museum at the End of Time. And this was another of my favorites. Yeah, I like this one, too. Again, another thing that there's something kind of familiar about this. Like, in both original Trek and revisited in The Next Generation, someone lost in uh, kind of a pocket out of time and space or a collector type who was causing problems for the Enterprise crew. In this one, the said collector, the, the curator rather, is benevolent, but we're, we don't know that immediately. The, the, the Enterprise is uh, lost uh, in some... How does this quite work? Can you take the, <laughs> the helm here, if it were? Uh, well, you know, there's a black hole. It sends ships to limbo. It's a timeless space that has trapped many ships before it, uh, as well as a displaced city that's sort of like an astro... You know, like um, Supergirl's... Argo City. Argo city. I totally thought that. I totally thought that. <laughs> When I read. Yeah, it's become a museum and a sanctuary for all the those lost souls that find themselves in limbo. And now the Enterprise gets there. There's a Klingon cruiser there, also snared by that anomaly. And uh, of course, the Klingons immediately try to take over the museum. So yeah. Kirk and crew must defeat them. And then all the lost astronauts at the end choose to remain because they don't want to become relics. So there's an interesting idea there. They don't just choose to remain. They choose to remain and die because this floating, this place in limbo is going to be destroyed oh yeah it's imploding right it's it's on the verge of yeah. imploding when, the, when they're there uh this was a story that that just actually became star trek later the animated series had a one episode called the time trap which is exactly this yeah duh <laughs> and then oh. uh voyager did it as well there's an episode called void which is pretty much that idea and at the time i went oh they did the time trap again but the time trap did Museum at the end of time, <laughs> yeah. which came before. Yeah. One just minor note about this story is like the curator's pet looks like something straight out of H.R. Puffin stuff. It's very strange. It's one of those. I mean, it's a. It's like this tentacled dog. Yeah, it's like a fanciful giant puppy dog. It was so weird, but I mean, like I, it, <laughs> I, I dug it, <laughs> but 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 very strange. Uh, but when the Klingons, I think, kill it, then there's, like, no mention of it. And I think, like, if you've been trapped in a timeless void and you have this pet, don't you think, like, your companion would mean practically everything to you? Maybe, but, uh, maybe he's just stunned. Yeah. And, and again, not a lot of character development in these one-off stories. But I say the leader of the Klingons in this also, I'm just jumping tracks a little bit, does look more like the on-screen Klingons of the time. Yeah, the beard is, yeah. The skin tone's off, of course, but you can't have everything. Yeah, he's sort of uh, Mirror Spock. Uh, that, that's that's the vibe I get from him, from his face. Oh, yes. But there's more of a, like, there's a sash across the, the chest. And uh, and this one, the, the cover, which indeed I'll be using as uh, my promo image for the show. And usually, Gimme That Star Trek doesn't do a whole gallery post on the on the site but uh in, in this case because we're talking about comics and you want maybe to see what we're talking about i will be putting images up on the website but this cover actually has on model klingons so from then on you'd imagine that Giliti will have actual photo reference if not photo reference he's got that cover hopefully they're <laughs> sending him some comics right so yeah that one was pretty cool and we get our then we get uh day of the inquisitors which is from uh number 16 and it's the last of Sadly, the last of uh, Len Wein's uh, Star Trek comics for, gosh, years. over a day, years and years. Because uh, once DC Comics got the license in the 80s, 
Um, he wrote uh, a few of those too, and I may have read some of them. Yeah, I've read them. There, he wrote um, uh, number thirty-one to thirty-seven, and then thirty-nine and forty. That was in October of eighty-six through July of eighty-seven, and he had the unique problem of making the comics uh, timeline fit Star Trek Four retroactively. Because, oh. you know, the Enterprise is destroyed in Star Trek Three, And then, mm-hmm. yeah, in the comics, they come, oh, crap, what do we do? They put uh, Spock on a different ship, and, you know, everybody's running around on different ships because there's no Enterprise. And then Star Trek Four comes out, and, oh, Spock can't be on a different ship? <laughs> He's supposed to be, you know, sort of addled and, uh, you know, relearning how to be a person and everything on Vulcan. How, how do we connect? <laughs> these things so he had the that's quite a job yeah i don't envy that problem i imagine that being very tricky and and i'm sure i mean comics fandom was not in its infancy in 1986 i'm sure people were writing in like what the hell man (laughs) at the end they decided to give his whole ship got a brain virus and (laughs) it it killed the whole crew that he had there except him and they shipped him back to Vulcan uh, and then he had to whatever progress he'd made in the comics he'd lost and then he was you know he was back to that state so you could almost say that that fits even though they never mention it obviously they'll never mention what happens in the comics in the film series that doesn't work that way but yeah so that's that's how they fixed it and uh, uh, Lenwein got a chance to do like a Harry Mudd story and a Guardian of Forever story. And oh, nice! These are fairly solid comics as well. Interesting. I, I may have to seek them out. What did you think of Day of the Inquisitors? This last issue. I think it may be my favorite of the run. Oh, it's a very adult for one thing. It's got True. Spock being tortured. It's got they go to a planet. It's that trope where you go to a planet. It's got parallel development, but it's not at the same place, right? So whether it's Roman Empire or it's, in this case, it's the Inquisition. It's basically the Spanish Inquisition. Nobody expected that. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. (laughs) So yeah, so uh, it's got shades of the Ku Klux Klan in a sense because they've got those hoods. It's, It's very creepy in that sense. But you know what actually puts it over the top for me? What's that? It's Miss Claire. Yeah! Uh, Miss Claire is uh, this idea that Lenween just came up with, and if he continued, he had enough continuity in his run that you might expect this character to return, uh, because uh, he or she doesn't fulfill her full potential, I don't think. But she's yeah. she's the Enterprise's public relations officer. <laughs> and they give her more to do than Uhura, who has only appeared in two of these stories. Yeah, although at least Uhura goes down on away teams. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, no, Miss Claire here, uh, she does get to kick an Inquisitor in the shin uh, (laughs) (laughs) and complain about their fashions. But yeah, so her job is, I guess guess she's really a first contact expert kind of thing. She's supposed to sell the Federation idea to alien peoples that they meet. I, I, I'm guessing that's the idea, but I'm, I'm seeing, and this is because, you know, I've been a, in public relations. I've been a communications officer. So, uh, this is the first time that somebody's had my job on the crew. Kind of thing. Oh, oh! I can see that it would have a particular resonance for you then. I didn't realize that. And, and then I would imagine, you know, I'm reading this and I'm imagining, okay, sure, she's selling the Federation, which makes sense. You would want someone 
to put the best foot forward, which isn't always the ship's crew. But right. um, how many PR disasters is Kirk responsible for? All of them. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> so she would spend half her time just <laughs> just putting out press releases because he's broken the Prime Directive. Or right, uh, I'm going to bring up the Prime Directive in its relation to these stories. It seems to be thrown to the wind. <laughs> but you know, again. That kind of rings true to Trek and Kirk, so <laughs> it'll do. <laughs> so I was intrigued by that character, and that may be why I have a um, particular interest in it, but maybe you have a different take? That character, um, she kind of reminded me of Nurse Chapel a little bit, as for, at least uh, aesthetically. Yeah, the look, yeah. Yeah, but um, no, I like this story. I mean, I also kind of saw the weaknesses of it. Like It's kind of like when you see a television show that wants to address an issue but doesn't really take a stance, and so the message is muddled and often meaningless. Sure, sure. Addressing the the Inquisition or, you know, fanaticism, uh, conservatism, whatever, it's kind of hard to do in a Code-era book, uh, especially for a licensed property, etc., etc. But I enjoyed this. There, There's familiarity, and I think, like many of the stronger episodes of the show addresses societal questions you know so uh so i i think it mostly works i don't think there are any of the comic stories across the whole gold key thing that actually you know actually have that the same depth as the tv series did uh, when it came to like to, to tell moral fables it never really reaches that right so i can understand this being a favorite so yeah day of the inquisitors thumbs up yeah it's also got uh, felix faust as the big bad <laughs> yeah <laughs> The, the, yes, the main Inquisitor definitely looks like Felix Faust. I didn't even think about that. Um, but yeah, and and this one is the first one to I think to show the shuttlecraft as we would uh, see it on the show. Yeah, they crashed the Galileo, and it's the yeah. first one to have Chekhov in it. Yeah, that's right. I did think it was the plot point of the Inquisitors took their radio from the Galileo and they had to get it back. It's like, wait a sec, did, did Ween forget that? that everyone has their own personal communicator. They could hail the ship with those, but comics. And in these comics, they don't use them that much. Some of the technology is sometimes forgotten for plot's convenience, which sure. which is also happens on the show, I must say. True. Very true. You know, you could fix everything with a transporter and a replicator, but they, they rarely do. And where's the transporter located uh, uh, in, in these comics? <laughs> is, is it, it seems to be near the bridge. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the insides of the ship are never... Actually, through these eight issues, you kind of start seeing it like the bridge morphing to something that looks like the bridge we know. Right. Yeah, you know, it's kind of... It's a work in progress. So I, I think there's a lot of charm to that, to the whole idea that, you know, it's like Star Trek Comics has filtered through a very good artist who has, you know, not really seen the show. Uh, and it's an idea of the show. I, I like it as an artifact of its time. Yeah, and, and I think it works despite the things it has against it, by and large. These are pretty fun comics. Uh, they're nice to look at. It feels enough like the show to work, to feed one's hunger for more uh, material with these characters. And I think, by and large, the, these issues are, are a success and something that Ween uh, could have been proud of. Yeah, and the series immediately after him goes back to, you know, Silver Age nonsense. And not Silver Age nonsense, but in Star Trek, maybe a little less of that, please. <laughs> it just doesn't seem to fit the space opera stories that really do fit that world. There are a few issues... 
you know, after this that I did enjoy quite a bit that are some of my favorites in the run. But uh, by and large, I think the eight Lenween issues are the sp- you know, the strongest run in the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, I haven't read, uh, the, the full run and, and I sounds like I haven't read as many of the other issues as you have Siskoid. Um, what I've read of the, the rest of the series, I, I, I can, I can concur with you on that. And, uh, if people are looking to, to, to read these, uh, there are collections. Yeah. I have the, uh, the four volumes of the enterprise logs. These are some of the earliest trade paperbacks in existence. I think they were these were done in uh, uh, in the 70s, and these are collect about nine issues apiece, eight or nine issues apiece, and they're nice little volumes. They they only did four volumes, so the whole series is collected from Golden Press, which is of course part of Western Publishing. But uh, the 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 full run's been collected in hardcover by ID, IDW and others, right? Uh, IDW has the license right now, so. Uh, it makes sense for them to do these uh, collections. Uh, so yeah, th- those those volumes exist as well. And there is a CD-ROM that you might find that for a while was one of the the ways you could read the series. That's the way I read it. It's like a big you know, omnibus CD for your computer. I, I still see it on eBay and whatnot. So it's it's available randomly, I guess. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So there are ways to read this. And IDW, I think uh, maybe their strongest asset is their archival uh, material. Like uh, they, they really do uh, some nice work with, with those books. Yeah, definitely. It's good to keep these things in print because... You know, right now, no one, no one associated with them is still alive, right? Yeah, I don't think so. I'm, yeah, I'm gonna go out on a limb and say Alberto Giolitti is is uh, shuffled off this mortal coil, mm-hmm. and uh, and unfortunately, so is uh, Lenween. Any last words on uh, on Lenween's Gold Key Comics run? These are fun. I mean, if you're looking for something a little different, and you'd like, and if you're like most of us, uh, a Lenween uh, enthusiast, these are worth seeking out. Uh, it, it's something different from the uh, the usual and Marvel uh, and DC superhero fare that we associate uh, with most uh, writers of the period, certainly of Len Wein. But uh, but uh, but yeah, good stuff, enjoyable stuff, fun. And I th- <laughs> yeah, and I think a uh, nice companion to the animated series, I mean, those kinds of stories where the characters are actually recognizable as the ones you saw on TV, which is not necessarily true of the entire Gold Key run, but. Uh, you know, Len Wein <laughs> is for sure. Uh, Nicholas, why don't you uh, pimp your projects here and uh, tell us where the, the fine folks can hear more from you on uh, on the Internet. All right. Don't say we didn't warn you, folks. My main show, Comic Reflections, you can find it on uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, etc. It's uh, vintage comic talk. We bounce around with, between all kinds of series and, and periods in comics, mostly the, from the Silver and Bronze Ages. And um, we've got an archive of hundreds of episodes over 300 or is it more than that uh rob and i just had rob uh from the network uh guest on my 306th episode jeez uh which will be dropping very soon probably before this episode airs that and my side project the marvel saga are are available in the same feed we're everywhere you want to be on the internet folks there you go seek it out and uh, so i'll uh, let you board the shuttlecraft and uh Go back to the West Coast. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, I'll play your promo, and uh, once uh, when we get back, I'll be doing uh, subspace transmissions, which is your feedback and Star Trek news. Siskoid, thank you again for having me on the show. A pleasure. Hi, I'm Nicholas Prom, the host of Comic Reflections, a podcast devoted to Silver and Bronze Age comics. Join me and my spunky sidekicks, Jeff Barnhart, 
the crusty curmudgeon from Dogpatch USA, and Spencer Valadez, podcasting's very own Apache Chief, as we discuss the grooviest comic books of yesteryear. You'll find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and at comicreflections.wordpress.com. What are you waiting for? Tune in, turn on, and kick ass! Incoming subspace transmissions. In Star Trek News, Discovery Season 1 isn't over, but they've started work on Season 2 and can already tell us the show will go back to Trek's roots and feature more exploration. I'm not sure if that's because it was never meant to be more than a one-season story that got picked up for more, or if they've decided the long arcs of the first season were problematic on a writing or viewership level. It's awards season, and Discovery is up for a number of them. Jason Isaacs has been nominated for Best Actor in a TV Series for the 2018 Empire Awards, which you can vote in at empireonline.com. The show is up for a GLAAD Media Award, which recognizes and honors media for their fair, accurate, and inclusive representations of the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer community, and the issues that affect their lives. The International Cinematographers Guild has included Discovery's publicist, Kristen Hall, for the Maxwell Weinberg Publicist Showmanship Television Award. Yep, that's a thing. Uh, the show is also up for the Visual Effects Society Awards under Outstanding Visual Effects in a Photoreal Episode and Outstanding Compositing in a Photoreal Episode. And the Costume Designers Guild has included costume designer Gersha Phillips among its nominees. <laughs> Larry Nemesek, author of multiple Trek reference books, has launched a new podcast at Roddenberry.com. This weekly 15-minute program will showcase documents, many of them unseen until now, contained in the Gene Roddenberry personal archive. Each episode will be about one document, and Larry will be joined by a guest who will help provide its original context as well as its relevance for today's Trek and the world at large. The first group of guests includes the Trek Files co-producer and Mission Log podcast co-host John Champion, the legendary story editor of TOS, TAS, and TNG associate producer Dorothy D.C. Fontana, and Dave Rossi, longtime assistant to Rick Berman, an associate producer on Enterprise and the TOS Remastered project. And watch for the release of Star Trek Lost Scenes, a full-color book by David Tiloda and Kurt Meccaloni that presents, often for the first time, more than 700 professionally restored photos of deleted scenes, bloopers, characters cast, and special effects, along with those scenes' scripts. It is due out in August. Now for your feedback, mostly on fireandwaterpodcast.com. David A. Gutierrez says Cisco was the best... Great show, and this, of course, was all about episode number 17, about uh, Captain Sisko and his leadership with special guest Jared Albrecht. Tim Bryce goes on to say, The usual conversation about the Star Trek leaders is about your favorite. I really enjoyed this episode's angle of analyzing effectiveness and style. Is there enough source material for a Sports in Trek episode, he wonders. Uh, Santarin and Scott X got in on the game, and we mentioned on that whole conversation a lot of sports. So yes, there could be an episode about that. I'm just not sure what it would look like. Rob Kelly uh, says, really enjoyed Jared's perspective on leadership as how it relates to Cisco. As I have said, I have not seen most of DS9, but from the stuff I have seen, seems like he'd be a pretty ideal captain to serve under, a nice hybrid of Kirk and Picard. Santarin says, Benjamin Cisco is the first leading captain to not have his command style be directly based on Horatio Hornblower, as Roddenberry had based Pike, Kirk, and Picard on aspects of him. That may be a reason for the difference. Uh, Chris Franklin goes on to say, I admit DS9 is kind of my Trek blind spot, boo. 
in that it's the only universally lauded Trek I have not seen every episode of. Boop. I was transitioning to college when it came on, so not a lot of free time to watch it on the weekends like TNG and old TOS reruns before. But I liked Avery Brooks on Spencer for Hire and Hawk, so I immediately accepted him as the hero type for this series. I wonder if Sisko's more forthright leadership style influenced the change of Picard to action hero in the TNG films, or was it that just a necessity of a change in format. I think the latter. Uh, with all of this talk, I'm going to have to queue up Netflix and finally give DS9 its due. You sold me. Then we have Craig McDee who says, I think Cisco was shortchanged a lot during the first two seasons in favor of Kira, who was a much more popular character at the time. Uh, you surprise me, Craig. <laughs> That's... She seemed very strident in those seasons. Anyway, he says, Cisco had a lot more on his plate than the standard Trek captain, though. He had the station, Bajor, the wormhole, and in a sense, the entire Alpha Quadrant to worry about, all while raising his son. I think I related to him more than Kirk or Picard, because while they were busy quoting Shakespeare or whoever, Cisco was more interested in playing baseball with his son. And finally, little Russell Burbage of Andor. Changes address. Uh, love this episode, he says, and not just because Cisco is one of my favorites. For all the reasons you and Jared gave, he was the guy I would have most liked to have worked with or for. I am not embarrassed to say that I have a Cisco action figure on my desk right now. I tried to channel his leadership qualities while I work with the Legion of Super Bloggers and the Fire and Water Network. Well, it seems to work. Next, Facebook likes and shares from Brian Ng, Brian Linton, Chris Franklin, Clinton Robinson of Coffee and Comics, Corey Drew, David Is Gutierrez here says, Is Cisco the best captain? Yes. Uh, D. Bash, Derek William Crabb, Gotham Sharon of Pulp to Pixels Podcasts, Gord Tolton, Jason Mulliken, Jason Pope, Jennifer Lee Breyer. She says, It's difficult for me to choose between Picard and Cisco. I usually select Picard as my personality would respond better to his leadership style. However, this episode has provided me much to consider. Cisco is even better than I remember. After watching TNG three times in 2017, it's clearly time for me to revisit D Space Nine. More Facebook likes and shares from John Grenier, Longbox Crusade, Robert Gross, Russell Burbage, Ryan Daly, Sean Emmons, and Van Z. Google Plus. Uh, has likes and shares from Edward Crosby and Outside Material. Twitter retweets and favorites from Aaron Henley, AJ, Alexander Ozias, All New Sucks, Beat Them All, Beatlemania, Between the Pages, Billy Batson, Billy the Dragon, BoldOutlaw.com, Bruce Gordon, Captain Kirk's Dildo, Chris T.T., Cindy Womack, Comic Book Insurance, Craig Oxbro, Daniel Blake, Daniel R. Budnick, Darren Selvig, David Byer Jr., David Gallagher, Dr. G. Nerdologist, Eli, Epicurus's Atheist, Fan Holes Podcast, Franklin Boyd, Hail Ming Power Hour, Isolated Tops, Jenny Breyer says, uh, Snow Day in South Jersey means I can finally catch up with Gimme That Star Trek with the enjoyable host, Siskoid, that's me, as well as other FW Podcast shows, Calling All Nerds and Geeks, check out these shows, Gimme That Star Trek is a top three podcast for me along with LeVar Burton Reads and Boom Lawyered. That's pretty high praise and thank you for this uh, this major <laughs> retweet and call to, to listen. Justice Trek the podcast, Justice's First Dawn, Longbox Crusade, Man Brain Podcast, Max Romero of It's Plastic Man, Rad Adventures, Rob Kelly Creative of Digest Cast, Film and Water Podcast, Hosts of Sad, Spot Dylan, Superman Movie Minute, Treasure Comics, and Mashcast, Ryan Daly, Scott Hume, Skip Henner, Ted Kelvington, The Hoopers, Three People Like This, Tim Price, Trekonomics Regbot, We Welcome Our Robot Overlords, and Willie Yarbro. Thank you all. That's how people discover the show. As usual, let me remind you that you can leave comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com, on the Fire and Water Facebook page, or on Twitter with the hashtag FWPodcasts. Until the next episode, this is Siskoid reminding you to go boldly. Go boldly.